You're listening to a sermon delivered at First Family Church from the series, The King and the Kings, Anticipation in the Books of Samuel. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. When we last, when we last left David, he was characterized and typified by the sixth to last word in the first verse of First Samuel 21. Did you catch all that? Locate that, would you? The sixth to last word in the 21st chapter of 1 Samuel in the ESV version. This is where we last left David. Who spotted the word and can say it? It is the word alone. Do you see that? Ahimelech says to him, why are you alone? No one's with you. And what we begin now really is uh, several chapters and what we see to be probably about a 10-year span, perhaps, of a man on the run. We're going to look at this for a number of weeks, David's difficult time, in which a lot of the Psalms were written, by the way. We'll be reading some of these and talking about them. So if we can, can we kind of set the stage spiritually and historically as well? We're going to kind of walk through a number of things this morning in in scenes and uh, portraits, different scenarios. I want to make sure you understand how we got there, though. Uh, Here's the the situation or the timeline. Here's the historical atmosphere. It was desperate and dependent, especially the word dependent because Saul is still king. And actually what Israel is seeing happen is the fulfillment of everything Samuel said would happen when Saul became their king. He would take, 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 he would use. And you're going to find in this story, in fact, that there are men who ran ahead of Saul. In Samuel's prophecy, they were called the runners of the chariot. Samuel said, he will take men from your homes and he'll make them runners for his chariots. What that in a Hebrew culture meant was they'd be his Uh, bodyguards, the ones who would go before him and do his uh, bidding in regards to killing and and protection and defending, you're going to find here Saul actually asking some of those very men that come from those families to do something horrendous. They tell him no, we'll see. But this is a desperately dependent time in Israel's history in which the king is doing exactly what Samuel said he would do. He's taking, taking, taking. It's also spiritually a very declining and divisive time. Saul and David are at odds in a way that uh, we've never seen before. The spiritual temperature is very low. In fact, you'll find the Ark of the Covenant is in a different place than the high priest. You'll find that there's not a lot of clarity on who's uh, speaking for the people sometimes and who's offering the sacrifices. And so it's a declining, divisive environment spiritually. It's a desperate and dependent time physically. This is kind of behind the scenes of what's happening in 21 through about 29. We're just going to cover 21 and 22 this morning. We're going to find that though David was on the run and though the nation was in decline, God was on the move. And this is a comforting thought. Let's see it play out in these two chapters, can we? I want to show it to you in three scenes. Scenes 1 and 2 will be chapter 21, and they'll teach us a single truth. And then we'll look at the scene of chapter 23, and that'll teach us the truth. My goal is to take a few questions, of course, uh, after maybe we kind of talk about that, and then just bring some 
uh, a single sentence to you at the end, some application I think will help us process all that's happening. Notice, first of all, in scene one, what I always call is the protective lie or the convenient lie. Either way, it seems like it's convenient for David. In other ways, it seems like he's protecting people. We may have some difference of opinions here, but I think it's a good force to kind of walk through this. Notice what the scriptures say. First Samuel 21, David came to Nob to Elimelech the priest. Elimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And then David said to Elimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I've charged you. I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. In other words, David just made up this story that he's really there to the high priest because the king has asked him to do something, and that's not true. Now, was this a strategic lie to protect him? Was it a convenient lie? Was it a protective lie? Uh, You make your call. Commentators have different stances. I think we would all agree, regardless of why you think he did it, it is a lie. It's simply untrue. He then says, now, what do you have on hand? His men are hungry, of course. The priest now thinks he's on a mission for the king. And so they eat the bread. And by the way, there is exceptions in the law for this kind of thing to take place. It wasn't normal, but David, in the end, does eat the holy bread, uh, valuing life, not just legal requirements. In this exchange, verse 7 brings down an interesting observation. This is not an incidental side note. Notice verse 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Not an Israelite, an Edomite, more than likely someone they had captured in one of their battles. He was now kind of part of the army, and he apparently was a rather large, mighty warrior. He was the, as the scriptures say, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. So he had some kind of prominence, but he's here with the high priest, or he's here with Elimelech. David notices it, but you'll see later, he doesn't do anything about that, except it does strike fear in David, because next, he asks for Goliath's sword. Now, if you connect verses nine and, uh, 8 and 9 to verse 7, what you'll probably surmise is this. David spots Doeg, and he realizes, oh, here's one of Saul's men. I thought I would be safe here, but apparently this guy is going to go back and tell Saul, I should do something, I should protect myself. So I think that's why he asks for the sword. And so he says in verse uh, verse 8, Hey, do you have a spear or sword at hand? I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. There's the lie again. Well, the high priest, Elimelech, says, Yes, I've got Goliaths, and who better than you to use that? And so he gets Goliath's sword. In this first scene, David is guilty of two untruths. The same one, you can say, but on two different times, referring to the lie. I think out of fear. He sees Doeg. He knows he's on the run from Saul. And so it seems convenient, perhaps it seems protective to to say what he has to say. So regardless of why, we have to admit this, there, are, there is an untruth in this narrative that David tells to Elimelech. Well, he, he flees from there in scene 2, and he goes to Achish, the king of Gath. And notice what happens here. The servants of Achish said to him, or Achish, however you say it, Is not this David the king of the land? Here's scene 2. Did they not sing to one another of him in dances that... 
Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. This is amazing that news had traveled. David's fame is pretty widespread. But he's worried now because he is so well known for his valor and his might that here this king might say, well, if you struck Goliath, if you're that good and you're in my town, you must be up to no good, right? So the thought is, my goodness, if, the, if they're spotting me and the king spots me, the king's going to take me out. Which is why the text says, David took these words to heart, verse 12, and was what? Much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. And so he changed his behavior before them, pretended to be insane in their hands, and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. What a sight. But watch this, church. This is actually pretense. It's false. It's a lie acted out. Again, you may say, well, he's protecting himself. It's strategic. Very well could be. But in either case, what you have here is David on, in one place verbally telling a lie. And in the other place, visually acting out a lie. It works, though, verse 14, at least it works in the immediate. The king says, do you see this man is mad? Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen? That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? What kind of people the king have around that he would say, do I lack madmen around me? Like, I've got enough of these kind of guys, right? That you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence. Shall this fellow come into my house? The implication being, no, get rid of him. So in, in the immediate, David was spared. It seems, and we're going to see in a minute the longer term effect, but at least in the immediate, in the short term, the lie, both verbally and visually, visually seemed to work. Like, okay. Now, we'll ask ourselves that same question at the end of 23, but let's just kind of take this, these first two scenes understand something. I think they present to us an interesting observation. That difficult times often present to us a haughty temptation. And that's this. I will be in control. And you can word that however you like. I'll get control. I'll wrestle control away. Or I'll do what I have to do to stay in control. But I think one of the things this narrative shows us in all of its honesty and all of its reality is that David is not in one of his, his brightest moments here. He's fearing what's happening. He's running. And whether you think it's strategic, necessary, convenient, protective, you can debate those in your lighthouse and around the dinner table. The truth is, there was a sense in which David began to rely on himself and say, I have to be in control. I've got to do whatever I can do to make sure that I make something happen. This seems a little different than the guy in 1 Samuel 17 who said, you know what, this, this giant, he's going down today in the name of the Lord. It seems a little different to me. And so here we see two situations in which David tries to wrestle control away. He tries to take control. I think that is a haughty temptation for all of us when things are difficult. Would you agree? In fact, let me word it to you like this. And, and this could be a point of, of just really good discussion about what's happening in this narrative. Because this is, a, this is a difficult story to kind of ponder and reflect on. But I think that the tendency is, the temptation is, the, the draw is this. Instead of trusting, I'll start scheming. Now, I don't think scheming is the same as working hard 
or trying. I don't think those are necessarily bad things. But I do think there's a, there's a point in which just trying to work and try and be diligent, you cross a line when you start to scheme. And I, and I don't know where that line is all the time in every situation. But would you agree with me that there seems to be a place when we move from trusting and honestly trying and, and working what we know we can Honestly, to where suddenly we cross the line and we're starting to scheme and manipulate because we have to be in control. If things are this bad, obviously God's forgotten. What's he doing? I made this note in my journal this week that there's two things I'm learning that I want to say I've learned, but I think I'm still learning them. Okay, can you row this boat with me? Two sure signs I'm not thinking clearly during a trial. When I want to scheme and not trust and blame and not accept. If I spot those two things in my life, I'm trying to scheme and not trust and blame and not accept. Those are two sure signs I'm not thinking clearly. I think in this narrative, those of you who perhaps see David as this perfect person with no faults would have to admit at least this narrative shows and portrays him in a moment in which perhaps... He was either nearing or crossing this line from trusting to perhaps scheming. It is the haughty temptation that presents itself to us when things begin to unravel from our perspective. Let me see if I can bring some more clarity to why I believe that is what's happening here. It's in the third scene. It's all of chapter 22. David departs from Gath, verse 1 says, and he goes to the cave of Adullam. His brothers, his father's house, they're there. And, and then here, this is almost similar to the, to the king at Gath. Apparently, he had a collection of madmen. Uh, David's got a collection of misfits. I love verse 2. It's so real lifeish. And, and in one sense, watch this, it's almost uh, the type of Christ and his disciples. Now, I don't think that's theologically something you want to... Uh, write down and say, well, this is a, a verified doctrine, okay? But, you know, Christ called together not the ones who were popular or mighty. He called together the fishermen, didn't he? Look who David ends up calling together. Everyone who is in distress, everyone who is in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul, they gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And they were, they were uh, with him about 400 men. That, that would be a... <laughs> If you were a counselor in that time, you'd have your office full, wouldn't you? <laughs> this is just a, an incredible collection of people with hang-ups and hurts, and it makes you think of us, doesn't it? I mean, we're, we're all this way. We all have a ton of things going on in our life that we try to shield people from seeing and protect others from looking at. But the truth is, when you gather in here on Sunday mornings, you're probably more like this than you want to admit, and so am I. What I love about this is that that God was actually in the middle of this. He's aware of David's shortcomings. He's aware of the group's failings. And yet God is not running from that or scared of that or, or cornered by that. God's actually working something bigger than all of them. And yet something that includes them. It says next that David went from there to Misp of Moab. Says to the king, let my father and mother stay here and... So basically, David's trying to find some shelter for his family away from Saul. He's a man on the run with a family as the target. Uh, Chris called this in one of our study groups. He said, David's like a high-value target. 
If you're in the military, you can understand that word. And David, not only that way, his family. There's just a, there's a, the crosshairs are on his back. They're on his family. And he's trying to protect them, it looks like. And so he's in Moab. But in the middle of this, the prophet Gad said to David. Now watch this. This is amazing. We don't know who told Gad to see David or where, who told Gad where David was. But Gad was a prophet. And so he comes to David and he says, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart, go into the land of Judah. Now, to, to say that militarily is crazy. That's not strategic. Because where is he going? He's going back to the place where the king rules, and the king is trying to kill him. It's like, yeah, I'll go back to the enemy's territory. There's little chance he'll be able to hide in Judah is what he should be thinking. But the truth is, maybe Saul actually was looking for him outside of Judah. Maybe this was the safest place. It's, it's up, for, up for debate. But regardless, the prophet says to David, you go back to Judah, and so David obeys. I find in here an interesting thing, that in the middle of David trying to control everything, God actually controls it, doesn't he? He sends a prophet to say, David, quit going to the enemy's territory, go back to your homeland. And oddly, in one sense, David does that. doesn't seem like the best military move. Doesn't seem like the one that makes the most sense strategically, but David goes back to where uh, he's from and to where Saul has most um, control. But apparently it, it works and he hides there. While he's doing that, Doeg does, excuse me, Doeg does exactly what David thought he would do. He does tell Saul about what happened at Nob. I won't read 6 through 19. I'll just tell you the story briefly. I'd encourage you to read through it even now or at home later. But basically Saul hears that Ahimelech helped David, even though he helped him innocently because he believed the lie David told him. Saul comes, confronts Ahimelech, is totally angry, and says to Doeg, who was the rat in the situation, um, well, excuse me, he says to his servants first, kill, kill this priest and all these men of God. Well, all of Saul's bodyguards and, and warriors, the ones who were the chariot runners described in the first part of Samuel, the ones he took from the homes of all the families to be his runners, they said, no, we're not killing these priests, man. We're not, we're not cutting their throats. But Doeg, who was, like I said, uh, the snitch, he sees a chance here to become prominent in Saul's regime. He does exactly that, and he lets his anger... And his wrath get out of control. He not only kills 85 of God's men, he goes and kills all the folks and the animals in the town. This is under Saul's watch, by the way. Isn't it interesting how Saul's inability to control his own anger at times... Remember he threw a spirit, David? Threw a spirit, Jonathan? Remember he was always worried about himself most? He was insecure? Um, suddenly, now this is spreading... He finds someone kind of like him. And now 85 people, men of God, plus a town, are, are, are murdered. Well, one escapes, Abiathar. Let's pick it up in verse 20. He escapes and he flees to David. Verse 21, Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Notice he doesn't use the word doeg there. He attributes the blame to Saul. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day. You ought to circle verse 22, draw a line back to verse 7 of chapter 21. This is why 21 sevens in the narrative. 
It's not incidental. Do you see it there? A certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, the time of the Lord. David saw that. Now, later, he's realizing, oh, that's why uh, uh, when Doeg was there, I knew he would tell Saul. And then he makes an amazing statement. I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. He confesses to Abiathar. They're dead. And I'm an accomplice to it in some degree. Those are striking words. Now, I think that you can take two angles here. You can either think that David's thinking to himself, I should have killed Doeg with Goliath's sword the minute I realized who he was and what he would do. You can think that, right? He sees Doeg. He says, Doeg's going to go tell Saul. This is not going to be good. I'll take him out right now. You can think that. Or you may think, wow, because I lied, Saul came after Elimelech, thought Elimelech was conspiring with me, and then killed him. However you look at it, David senses some responsibility in the murder of these priests, the murder of these men of God, the murder of these townspeople. And he says to Abiathar, the only one who survived, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. And then he makes a promise to him that's actually the opposite of what he did initially. Initially, he seemed to only be protecting himself. I want to lie if I have to protect you, my men, but it really didn't protect anybody. It gave them short-term, immediate, convenient protection, but in the end, it appears that more people died. He says, you know what, I'm going to take care of you. He who seeks my life will seek your life with me. You shall be in safekeeping. And some of what we find in 23, watch this, is we find that here's the humble realization. Though we think we have to be in control in difficult times, and so sometimes we cross from trusting to scheming, and instead of accepting, we blame. The truth is, here's the humble realization that God is in control. That's why I think verse 5 of this chapter, when Gad finds David and says to him, go back to Judah, that's God just sovereignly and providentially controlling the situation. And David was not even aware it was going to happen. He didn't lie. He didn't maneuver. He didn't manipulate. He didn't scheme. God just intervened sovereignly. He said, David, you need to leave through the prophet. And even in this last situation, as, as tragic as it is, David realized, well, I tried my best to protect people, and the opposite occurred. Many people died. Like he realized that he's really not as in control as he thinks. Who is actually in control? God is. So this narrative is... It's interesting, isn't it? This humble realization David has. And you kind of sense it in the ambiance of the text, don't you? That, that wow, uh, I'm not as powerful as I think I am. I'm not as controlling as I wished I was. This seems to come upon the heels of his realization in verse 22. Now listen very carefully. We would have to admit that David... Didn't at least so far, David didn't do the fugitive thing perfectly. Wouldn't you agree with that? And who's to blame him in one sense, right? Me and uh, you and I, me and you, have the words that we would have probably lied as well. We would have been afraid. 
We'd have probably manipulated and schemed. There's no doubt David's in a physically tough spot. But this realization, he begins to see something, I think. That though he's not this, this perfect fugitive, he's not getting everything right, God is still maturing him, working in him. I think these narratives, and this is not anything surprising, listen, I think they showcase God, not David. Because we see David in some of his darker, less attractive moments. And yet, what do we see? We see God continually being faithful, as Psalm 57 says, because of his steadfast love, his covenant commitment to his people. That even when David wasn't the shining star, God was faithful and would keep his promises. In this situation, keep David alive and move him toward being king. This is just the the, the beginning of the the man-on-the-run narratives in which we see, watch this, not David's prowess, not David's military intelligence. We see God's faithfulness in some of David's worser days. Am I the only guy in this room that finds comfort in that? I don't think so. I don't think I'm the only person here who's like, boy, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't do well in that moment. Man, the worst part of me showed up. I, I really hurt that person. Man, I, I did not mean to say that to my wife. I wish I would not have disciplined my kid that way. Why did I do that? Am I the only person thinking that right now? No. Aren't you glad that in those moments, the narrative's not about you? It is about God who will be faithful when you aren't. When you lie, when you act a certain way that you're really not. When you take a shortcut thinking it's actually going to be the, the solution and it actually causes more damage. When your narrative looks as ugly as 1 Samuel 21 and 22, aren't you glad that you are actually not in control? God still is. Hallelujah, church. Man, that's humbling. But it is so comforting. In all frankness, if I could just pause here and share this with you, isn't this the story of the gospel? Let me give it to you in New Testament language. And just rejoice in this. Let this just overwhelm your heart. Be flooded with this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God wasn't waiting for you to get your narrative in order. (laughs) The gospel's not about people saying, man, I really deserve what God has done. Look how I've earned this. No, while you were weak, he was strong. While you were poor, he was rich. While you were a sinner, he was righteous. In a lot of ways, this is actually the gospel. 
It's our narrative going crazily wrong. And God stepping in. Four sinners. Amen, church. What a beautiful, powerful God. I must ask you this, too. If, if you are here and you're like, Todd, that's my life. My narrative is spiraling out of control. Would God even love me? Does God even know I'm here? Does he even, is he even aware? Oh, he's more than aware. He's actually active. And he loves you and he is drawing you to a side. And the very things that you think are going to be the death of you may actually be the very things God will use to bring life to you. As you see that you're not in control, but God is. And he desires that you fall on your knees and repent and say, Lord, save me. I can't save myself. It's pretty clear. And then through the work of Jesus Christ, God will save all those who believe in his name. And I don't know all of you here this morning, all of your spiritual condition, but I know God saves people who come to the end of themselves. And this morning, you're at the end of yourself. If your narrative is nothing but a crash waiting to happen, God loves you. He sent Jesus as the forgiveness for our sins, the sacrifice, the satisfactory substitution. Would you right now just say, God, in the middle of my mess, I trust you and Jesus. What you did through Jesus, your son, I trust that as the forgiveness for all my sin. And God will do that. He'll forgive you. Amen. This room's full of folks who would testify to that. So let me ask you a question. What, what's going on in this narrative? This is probably two of the, or three of the stranger stories you've heard. They're tragic. They're sad. They're, they're questionable. Some of you have different opinions on them. What's going on in the narrative? Let me give you a, a general paragraph that I think I want to kind of write this out for you. Here's what I think is going on. Overall, it seems that God is providentially moving David along in his spiritual development. Okay? How? Through difficult times. Through putting him on the run. He's preparing him for a future kingship. I think the area in which David needs to grow the most, from what we read in the scripture, is this idea of reliance and trust in Christ. And so God is providentially causing this to happen. David, I want you to grow in trusting me, so we're going to take some time to, to kind of let, let you learn this. In these times, David didn't act perfectly. You're right. But God still reigned sovereignly, and he loved faithfully, showing himself to be exactly who he claims to be, Almighty God. This is not about Almighty David, amen? It's about Almighty God. Let's put a, uh, a little shorter version of this, can we? And this is something we can rejoice in. That having a heart for the Lord doesn't guarantee perfect circumstances. And I might insert here, nor perfect behavior. I see Brad back there nodding. I'm nodding with you, bro. Amen. That's comforting, isn't it? It is. I mean, David was a man after God's heart. But look what he does here. He's in some difficult situations. And he's not responding perfectly every time. But God never negates his description of David. He's a man after my own heart. Man, that's just... uh, That's a soulless to your soul. And so we know that having a heart for God doesn't require or guarantee perfect circumstances nor perfect behavior, but it does garner us opportunities to showcase humble submission to God's character-building process, which at times is this, that
when you're not sure what to do, don't scheme, just trust. Don't manipulate, don't leverage, just trust. Doesn't mean you can't work and try and do what's humanly right and and possible. But when you actually come to the end of that and you're like, it's not going like I think, I think I'll start scheming, manipulating, don't. Let God's actual character building process work and just trust Him. Don't blame, accept, and don't scheme, trust. And live with this truth that you actually aren't in control like you think, but God is. And the narrative is really about Him after all. And His faithfulness to His people. I know I said I'd take questions, but I think for time's sake, I want to just have you just text those in. I'll answer them in some other fashion. I'll either text you back or I'll I'll write about them on my blog. Because I want to just put a couple of three phrases to this that I think would give it some handles, okay? It's a long paragraph, kind of a long sentence in some ways, but can I just give you three simple sentences that I say serve as handles for this? Truths you can walk out with. First of all, God is at work. And the church should say what? Amen. God is at work. When you read these chapters, there's 21 through 29. Here are the first two. When you read them, you might think, man, did, did God forget what he told David that he was going to be king? This sounds like someone who's not a king. He's in a cave with a bunch of weirdos, right? He's going from town to town of his previous enemy. He's trying to hide. How in the world is this anything close to what God said would happen? But make no mistake, church, God is at work. He's preparing David. I can answer the question of why or how. I can simply attest to you, God is at work. He's moving David towards the throne. It's not the avenue I would have chosen or you. But God is at work. Which means God is purposeful and powerful, okay? Never think that difficult times mean God fell asleep or he stopped working. No, God is at work. In fact, we would finish the sentence like this. We'd continue it by saying this. God is at work in you and around you. Not just around you, by the way. He's at work where? In you. So often the difficult times when we're a a man or a woman on the run, it's because God is doing something in us before he can do something through us. He's getting the vessel into the right kind of shape that can carry the message best. This is what's happening in difficult times. And by the way, James attests to this, Job attests to this, Peter attests to this, and Paul attests to this. Four biblical writers who say that God does his best work in the caves. So it's personal. It's it's God's powerful purposes and yet being singled out right with your name on it. It's personal. But here's the best part of it, I think. God is at work in you and around you in spite of what's in you and around you. (laughs) Otherwise, he wouldn't be God. He would just be a really good guy. He'd be a really smart businessman, a really powerful leader. But you know what? God is supernatural, holy, and otherly. He's not like us. And he has the incredible ability 
To even use what's around us that is often negative, even to use what's in us that's even sinful, to actually produce what needs to be done in us and around us. It's an amazing thing. So here's three handles that you just need to kind of take with you today. As perhaps you feel like you're a man or a woman on the run. You're enduring some stuff. God is at work. Could you say it with me? God is at work. And God is at work in you and around you. And he's at work in you and around you. Say it with me. In spite of what's in you and around you. And when I smile and, and gleefully proclaim that to you, I must be honest that this week I sat for a few minutes and thought about all the times that was true. And I didn't get past my own family. And I was, I was a mess. As someone told me this week, I was ruined. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I've hurt my family. I know I have. I've hurt my wife. I've hurt my son, my daughters. I know I have. I know you have. Not hurt mine, you've hurt your own, right? <laughs> I've hurt leaders I've worked with. I've hurt some of you in moments that I thought I was trying to do the right thing. I did the wrong thing. And as I sat and pondered those times when I was not at my brightest, I was so glad God was. So I'm smiling, I'm, I'm joyful about this, but boy, there's some deep reflection that took place last couple weeks over time that I just wasn't a great pastor, you know? I wasn't a really good husband at times. I sure wasn't a good dad at times. And yet, God was so faithful. Man, we've got a good marriage, you know? i got a wife who loves me and four kids that love Jesus that, and none of that's because of my perfection. You know that? It's in spite of me, to be frank with you. There's a church full of people who love Jesus, who are trying to celebrate, grow, and serve, to make his passion our mission, who put up with a lot of things that aren't perfect. I know that. You know what? You, this church is here in spite of me, I believe. So I, as I just kind of pondered all that, I just thought, wow, God, you... You are faithful. You're beautiful. So I don't read these two chapters and really see David. I read him and see God. In fact, I think these two chapters can be summed up best by perhaps a verse we love to quote. Here's the verse. I'll show it to you. Romans 8, 28 and 29. We know that for those who love God... All things work together for what? Good. But what is the good? Is it the short-term solution, the immediate payoff? No, here's the good. That those whom he called would be conformed to the image of his son. Amen? And you know how God does that? The band is joining me. We're going to kind of go out in in just a few minutes. You know how God accomplishes this good purpose? Through difficult times often. It is not his only method, but I would say to you, biblically, it is probably his best one. So would you now, for a few minutes, stop looking at the things in your life that you're trying to change and manipulate and scheme 
and get around. Maybe that actual burden is actually a blessing in disguise. Maybe the very things that you think are frustrating are God's sanctifying tools in your life. If you're asking me to explain how he does it, I don't know if I can. Because God can take things that aren't good. Even things we do that aren't right. Somehow, he can even take all of those and by his own power and faithfulness work them so that they produce in us the character of a son. I don't know how that works. I don't know. I just Is that okay to say? I don't know. But I know God is committed to his people. And he will make you like his son. So can we start looking with different eyes for a bit? The very things we think maybe what's hurting us, they actually may be what's helping us. Bow your heads with me, please, would you, First Family? I want us to think about this song for a bit. I've asked the band to, to pull together a song called Blessings. I think it communicates well in musical form. These two chapters, as well as the heartbeat we're after today. But you know what? Sometimes what we think is actually a, the thing we hate the most. Maybe that's what God's actually using to bring about the character of His Son in our life. So just ponder this song, would you? I don't want you to sing today. It's kind of a special gift to our church from our worship team. The words will be on the screen behind me. When they're done, I'll come back and we'll just take communion and sing one final song. All right? But think about these two chapters. Think about all that we've shared today. Think about how the Holy Spirit's kind of pressed on you and leaned on you. And could it be that God is using the very situation you're running from and that you're running in to bring about the very character he needs to build in you? Reflect with me and let's enjoy this song, can we?
was in decline, but God was on the move. Perhaps the greatest place where what seemed to be a trial that actually was a blessing was the cross, where Jesus endured every bit God's wrath for us. 